Hey, welcome to the RHE podcast. That's Respect, Humility, and Empathy. And today we are here with Robert, who is a veteran of the U.S. military, 22 years. I understand Robert's been to Korea. I also understand he is a prolific writer, and I think he is an atheist like me. Anti-theist. So I, anti-theist. Ooh, that's the next yes. level up. All right. All right, higher evolved, uh, higher evolved atheist. <laughs> so, uh, Robert, uh, thank you all for joining us today. We really want to thank you, Robert, for your time. Uh, not only just for your time, but for your service to uh, our country. I live in South Korea, Robert, so I'm especially grateful for your service. But you know, every time I'm out, I, I love to see uh, our army guys or policemen out. I buy them a coffee or something because I'm just really grateful for your service because you keep the rest of us safe by doing such a hard job. So thank you. Uh, do you have any fond memories or anything you'd like to share about your time in Korea? Oh, man, I would kill for a good bowl of bulgogi, but <laughs> I can't seem to find that here. Uh, but, you know, I have to say, I there was a place I used to love to go. It's called Burning Hall. Uh, I don't know if it's still there. It was in Seoul. I was stationed in Yongsun. And it was a great little cigar bar. I love a good cigar. Uh, you know, and uh, it was one of those uh, nice, it was almost like something out of the like Roaring Twenties. I mean, you had Rat Pack mm. playing in the, you know, music in the background, nice. nice chairs to sit in. It was a great place to sit down, uh, blow a few thousand yuan on uh, cigars, shoot the breeze, tell jokes, talk politics and, and uh, you know, just whatever, spend time with people. Uh, for a long period of time. That's what I've always liked about cigars is because they take so long, long to smoke, it's a very social activity. You're going to spend uh, 30 minutes to 90 minutes on it. So you have to have that leisure time and you're not doing anything else. So you shoot the bricks. That's why I love them. <laughs> hey, Marshall. So I got to tell you a little something about Korea. It's really hard unless you're military to get like basic goods that you like that like uh like doritos for example if, if you want to eat doritos it's like korean doritos so uh they're not very good so i had a military connection every week we like meet in a dark alley he'd bring me twinkies and energy drinks and <laughs> chips man it was awesome we want to open up with a little friendly fire and mm -hmm. just ask you a few questions about yourself or uh some okay. hypothetical situations so just to gauge you a little bit so hope you don't mind you ready not at all go ahead Okay, so, all right, so if you could colonize any one planet, which one would it be? Any planet, does that include the gas giants? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I just that, pretend you could make you know what? land there. You know what, I would, you know what, I would actually go another way on that. I would think long-term and go with Pluto. I know it's not technically a planet it's like a, but i would still have to go with pluto because okay, okay. when the star when our sun expands <laughs> pluto will be prime real estate and it will be oceanfront property and everything it will be in a habitable zone that's <laughs> hilarious oh my god i would never expect someone to say something like that but okay Marshall. Hey, think long term <laughs> all right all right um you've got you, you get a free ticket to anywhere in the world, a free trip, uh, everything paid for, all expenses paid. You get to take a date with you. Where do you go? Tough call. 
anywhere in the world. Um, I would probably go to Scotland uh, nice. because I have cool. some Scottish ancestry, and there's places I've I've never been that I would always I would love to see uh, where some of my ancestors lived, and uh, I would take my wife. We've been All married right. for a little over twenty years now. Uh, what's your favorite pizza topping? Um, in combination, it would have to be pepperoni and pineapple. Mm. Mm. By itself, just pepperoni. Mm. All right. All right. You're in a desert walking along in the sand when all of a sudden you look down and you see a tortoise. You flip it over on its back. The tortoise lays on its back, its belly baking in the hot sun, beating its legs, trying to turn itself over. But it can't, not without your help. But you're not helping. Why aren't you helping? Uh, obviously, I'm cooking the tortoise to eat it. I must be hungry. Was <laughs> oh, that like the riddle? It is uh, from the movie Blade Runner, and it is a test oh. to tell whether the person who is being questioned is either a real a human or a synthetic mm -hmm. human created, uh, mm -hmm. you know, by a corporation to do work on uh, assisted okay. planets. Really? So oh. yeah. So it's it's a, it's from the movie Blade oh, Runner. So he's a cyborg. <laughs> Are you saying he's a cyborg? He's he's what right, they Robert, call a replicant. Last question. <laughs> last question. Last question, Robert. If you, <laughs> this is a bad one, but if you had to listen to one song on repeat, looped over for the rest of your life, barring Never Gonna Let You Down by uh, Rick Ashley, bar, that's the only song you can't choose, but what song would you choose? Beethoven's Night Symphony in B-Minor. Even play in your sleep. It'd also play in your sleep. Oh, yeah. That one. Yeah. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony in B-Minor. Love it. All right. There we go. All right, that works. There we go. So, so, right. so, so now uh, I, I, we've got a Clockwork Orange uh, reference here, you know, because uh, Alex <laughs> in uh, Clockwork Orange is a big fan of Beethoven. Starting to oh, trip yeah, me out. You're starting to trip me out, man. That's all <laughs> I can say. <laughs> all right, Robert. Uh, I, I want to ask you a quick question first. This is not primarily about uh, atheism, though. Marshall is a soft atheist. Uh, I'm a Christian myself, but. Uh, you you would describe yourself as an anti-theist? Yes. Okay. And w w explain a little bit of the, about that, just in like a couple of sentences, and uh, why it is exactly that you consider yourself a, an atheist, and even further than an atheist and anti-theist, please. Because I consider religion to be, in general, inherently harmful. Now, this isn't 100%. I'm not saying that, oh, you're a Christian, therefore you're a bad person, any more than I'm saying, oh, you're a Muslim, therefore you're a terrorist. That's not what mm -hmm. I believe. However, the problem that I have with religion in most respects is that on the whole, it tends to be fundamentally authoritarian, and it does not have a process of self-correction. Uh, it's very easy to do the wrong thing when you are within the context of religion, because you're taking your moral cues from someone other than yourself. And you've endowed that person or that book or that organization with authority to dictate according to your conscience. Do you think that same kind of mentality exists inside of the military as far as ranking and sometimes maybe having to do stuff that goes against your conscience? 
Well, you know, I can't speak for every every military. Speaking for the American military, I would definitely say no. In fact, we take uh, when I was going through. I don't know if they still do this, but when I was going through basic training, we talked about our obligations and morals, and it was actually part of basic training to have these kinds of ethical uh, ethical training, for lack of a better word, to talk about what was the right thing to do and when to do it. And I've disobeyed orders on occasion where I considered them to be unethical. Uh, years really? ago, yeah, years ago, uh, don't ask, don't tell was policy. Now, for those who don't know, don't ask, don't tell was a Bill Clinton era policy <clears throat> wherein if somebody was gay, they were allowed to serve in the military as long as nobody knew about it. Uh, and this policy was still going strong uh, when I was in. And around the time when social media started to become common, um, and this was back during the middle of the Iraq War, back when social media started to become a thing, and MySpace was still around. Uh, that's wow, that was a while yeah. back. Yeah, yeah. So that was a long time ago. So people would put things on their profiles, and they wouldn't think about it. Or if somebody was gay, they would put, well, they're gay on there. They weren't announcing to their superiors, but they were open about it in a way that hadn't existed before. So the question in the military came up, well, what do we do about this? Do we count this as, you know, telling or not? Uh, and we were in the middle of, you know, a deployment in Iraq, and we were all called into a, a, a meeting, and they said, if you find out that a soldier is gay, through their social media, you must report it so that they can be chaptered out of the military. And I told them no. And I made a big argument about it against a bunch of my superiors, people who were as high as Sergeant Major. I said, no, this is wrong. This is absolutely immoral and we shouldn't do it. And they said, you have to. And I said, no, I don't. Uh, one of our military values is to do what's right legally and morally. Now, what the law said and what was moral were in conflict. So I went with what I considered to be the moral option. And I said, if we're just going to go by the law, then 100 years ago or so, you guys would have been happy to return slaves across the board. So we can't just go by what the law says and what policy is. We have to follow our conscience. And that was wrong. Did you get court-martialed? Didn't no, I didn't. Um, the table got real quiet for a little while. I guess they weren't really expecting that. Uh, you know, if they ever made a movie about it, everybody would stand up and clap. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> The, the unit I was in at the time uh, had gotten kind of, and I don't know why this was to this day, I still don't know why, but they had kind of, and what you might call almost anti-gay witch hunts. It was bizarre to me to see how, because they knew there were some gay soldiers in the unit who had begun relationships with one another, living with one another. It certainly happened. Uh, it, always, it always has and always will. Um, but they got a, a hair up their about it for some reason and that shortly after that this meeting took place after that meeting i won't say that you know the whole army changed or anything like that but the whole concept of the witch hunt of oh we've got to follow policy and put people out and ruin their lives because oh no we found out that they like the same sex died down um you know i won't say that i've ever been a perfect person but i think there i made mm -hmm. the right choice and i don't regret right. it 
We've come a long way since the time of the ancient Spartans, I suppose, uh, who actually encouraged that kind of behavior. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you, you literally had to live in the barracks in ancient Sparta until I think you're at least age 25. And they actually encouraged that type of behavior because they felt it made people fight better, you know? Yeah, uh, I mean, so, you had, uh, yeah. Yeah, you had the golden band of Thebes, which was nothing but male lovers. They would fight back to back. Uh, mm -hmm. Alexander, they went undefeated for a hundred years until Alexander the wow. Great uh, killed them to the last man. And he who was who is also era. gay. Alexander the Great, also famously gay. Well, so. he was Macedonian, so yeah, <laughs> he, had that, he had that whole thing going. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know. Okay, so I, I do want to hit you with a question because uh, we've talked about your military service and we've talked about your atheism. I kind of want to bring the two topics together and say, what's it like to be an atheist in the military? Honestly, it really kind of depends on when you meet, because things have changed a lot in 20 years. When I first came in, uh, you know, back in, oh, let's see, May of 99. Uh, so, let's see. I would say it was rougher early on, but I wasn't an outright atheist when I first came in. But I knew some people who were atheists, and they uh, didn't. They, they kept it very quiet, uh, with mm. good reason. And that's slowly changed over the years. You've had atheist groups popping up within the military. You know, there's a, there's a whole organization of atheist soldiers now. Uh, I forget the name of them, but uh, yeah, you can find them pretty easily. Uh, and now I would say it's more common than not. <clears throat> uh, really? I mean, yeah, I would just at a personal guesstimate based on my own limited experience. And remember, this is not scientific. I wouldn't call it a good sample size, but over the course of a few, you know, thousand people that I've encountered, I would say the proportions of non-believers to believers has changed to roughly 50-50 compared wow. to what it used to be. That's and a that's lot of, being wow. gen and that and yeah. that's being generous to and that's being kind of generous. Wow. So there's a that's a lot of atheists and foxholes. What are you guys gonna pray to when the shelling starts? <laughs> He's joking. Uh the you, know, you guys can play to Dawkins. <laughs> that's right. Charles Darwin spare <laughs> so, me. Uh, or Marx. So, Robert, uh, so, you know, the topic today we're talking about is mental health, and mm -hmm. we want to know what your opinion is on what is the source of mental health issues, and I'm pretty sure this is kind of a given, though. I, I'm pretty sure that you've struggled with some mental health issues at some point if you've actually been in combat situations. Like, I don't see a scenario in which someone gets into a combat situation and comes back completely mentally. I, I don't see that scenario happening. So, I don't okay. know. Okay, so, all right. So, I, I did write out some answers to this since he submitted this one uh, beforehand. So, short answer mm -hmm. is brain structure and its chemical behavior. That's the very short answer. Now, the longer answer is the same, but it's complicated. Uh, however, it all boils down to the fact that everything that makes you, you, lies within the brain. It is mm -hmm. you, for lack of a better way to put it. Uh, your love, everything you love, hate, fear, hope, all is just brain behavior with chemical sources. This is why our brains respond to physical stimuli. 
why it's, why it's treatable or alterable with chemicals, why memories are strengthened for long-term recall or, or lost over time or as a result of injury. Uh, we don't know everything about the brain yet, mm -hmm. but you can see all this stuff in action with an MRI. And they're now even building machines. I was reading an article about this quite recently. Uh, I think I still have a copy of. They're building machines that are able to start constructing on a screen the things you imagine in your mind. Yeah. It's really amazing. They were doing this over 20 years ago, but it's come a long way since then. Uh, so the brain may be more complicated, more, more complicated than, say, you know, our spleens, but I mean, it's still just another organ and there's nothing mystical or supernatural about it. So all mental illness is sourced in some way up here. And that's what needs to be treated. Uh, myself, I don't think I necessarily could be said to have struggled severely with mental illness. I consider myself a very resilient person. I don't suffer from depression or psychosis. Uh, I do think I may be slightly autistic um, based on what I have read about it, but I haven't been tested for that, so I don't want to engage in self-diagnosis. But I, some of what I have you know, read versus a little self-reflection makes me wonder. I should probably get checked at some point, uh, but it hasn't been a problem, I, so I haven't worried about it. I had a cousin, I have a cousin, he's still around, but he was in the, I think it would be the Iraq war, and he he came back, man, I felt, I had like five sisters growing up and, and, and no brothers my age, so I, I practically lived at their house, so we were really close. Oh, I feel so bad when I think about this now because he had he had yeah. seen combat, and I remember when he got back, just he was telling me the struggles that he was having, and and he, he wound up getting divorced uh, from his wife. Yeah. But I yeah. think he just had a really difficult time readjusting back to uh, society, and yeah. kind of just the stuff that man, I don't even want to talk about this kind of yeah. stuff that you, told, I, you yeah. saw. I mean, I'll, I'll be frank. Time. I mean, when I. Yeah, I mean, it took months before I stopped waking up in a panic wondering where my weapon was. And every time the dump truck would come by and pick up those big, you know, metal bins, sounded way too much like income. So. Mark, well, hold on. Marshall and I are just going to go back and forth and uh, just be throwing in our opinion. So, um, sure. but if you, have, if you have any questions you want to ask us, please, uh, please ask us, right? Yeah, yeah, we do the WW tag team approach here. He goes in, he knocks you around a bit, and then he tags off with me, and I come in, and then I deliver a few blows. At some point, you know, the chair comes out, you know, and whack, right? You know, just like wrestling. Uh, so, um, <laughs> Robert, please tell me you like WW. What's your favorite WDF wrestler of all time? Uh, when I was a kid, I did, and it was Hulk Hogan. There you go. Uh, the Hulkster. Hulk Hogan. Mr. T, man. Yeah. Mr. T. Yeah. I remember the cartoon they had, too. The one, that horrible one from the 80s. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that in years. That was, I mean, all of the Oliver North trial was still going on. That's how old that was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Marsh. All right. All right. Um, how do you practice uh, mental health self-care in the military? Like, what do you do? You know, because mm -hmm. as I understand, your life is pretty rigid pretty regimented you know you, you you're active during this time this is what you do uh you have to do you know probably a lot of cleaning and other kind of side duties then you have your regular job i would reckon uh you're you, I, I don't know how much privacy you get but probably not a heck of a whole lot 
So how the heck do you maintain your mental health uh, without having to check yourself into a, a psychiatrist uh, under those conditions, especially probably in a combat zone? I mean, you know, they do. I will say this. The Army has come a long way over the last 20 years in terms of helping support that uh, in the past, and I wish I could say distant past, but I can't. Uh, in the past, uh, mental health issues were considered some sort of a sign of weakness, that there was a defect mm -hmm. in the person, you know. Uh, the, but they have been for at least 10 years trying to change that, you know, as military suicide rates have been high and, and everything else. Uh, in our daily life, I mean, if we do have, and this is, you know, we do have various services for mental health that people can use. Speaking for myself, um, you know, I keep an, a very active mind. I involve myself in reading and studying and writing and a creative outlet and things that keep me healthy. And of course, you know, there's always extracurriculars and other activities. And combat zone, it's a little bit different, but if you stay busy enough, then the time flies like that you know so robert, it will vary from person to person but that's me robert i want to ask you uh first of all just really quick just a little side note uh, do your parents know about your atheism uh my father does uh i don't believe my mother does i have not made it an issue uh so it it wasn't something i intended to bring up to them because my parents are very, very old. Uh, my older sister found out first. She found out from wow. something I had said on Facebook and she immediately called me up and wanted me to watch a sermon and so on and so forth. Um, wow. You know, uh, they live in fear of my immortal soul. So <laughs> um, it, it's unfortunate and it created yeah. a big divide between myself, my father, and some of my siblings. I'm pretty sure most I, of them know, but I haven't hit an issue with most of them. I, I got an interesting story to tell you because the last time I ever saw my mother, I had got uh, uh, the eye of raw tattooed on my chest when I was living in South Korea. Mm -hmm. And then I came home to mm -hmm. visit and someone, I don't know, someone narked on me because I posted mm -hmm. it on MySpace at the time. This is MySpace. And so my mom saw it. She got really angry and, and she confronted me. And I finally said, man, I don't believe in your God. I don't believe in, I believe you guys, you and your because they're ministers, said, I believe you guys wasted your life with this lie. And then she died like four months later. So I never got to see her again. Mm -hmm. And then uh, my dad tried to pray for me one time. And I told him never to mention the name of Jesus Christ to me again. Mm -hmm. And I had never wanted to do that before because of what happened with my mom. But then what wind up happening is I wind up having a religious conversion like two days later. So it was crazy timing, but I want to ask you uh, another question. Speaking of like God and religion is, do you think there is a possibility of anything such as demons or devils or jinn, which is like a Islamic uh, demon that is there any, do you, do, you, do you think there's any possibility of things like this arising uh, in an evolutionary scale, like evolving? No, no, really. I don't. I mean, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, in one of my web novels, uh, I created a fantasy universe in which 
magic was real and in it life evolved with the capacity to use magic so like there were spiders that could make themselves invisible plants that could create localized rain and i imagined a world in which nature the natural and the supernatural shared space uh, in an environment like that it would be conceivable for something like a soul to evolve almost like an organ uh, through a selection process based on this kind of fictional magic system. It would be possible for magic beings to evolve through the same process of natural selection that we have, only be in, being influenced by the presence of magic to take forms that they do. But in this reality that we experience, I don't even really have a particularly good definition for what a, a soul is supposed to do, let alone what it's really supposed to be made of or to tell if it were present, or how we would tell if it were present at all. Uh, so the idea of souls seems to me to be just this old mystical idea by early people to explain why some things were living and others were not. Like imagine you knew nothing, like you were a, a, a hunter-gatherer 150,000 years ago. You could tell that you were alive, that animals mm -hmm. were alive. You might have conceived of plants as being living things, having seen them grow and whatnot. But you'd know that, say, rocks probably weren't alive. How would you, what would, you would be trying to figure out, why is this thing living, but this other thing isn't? And why do I die? Why do I stop living? So the idea of a spirit uh, is appealing because it offers an explanation for a state of living and non-living and how something could go from the former to the latter. So it, it, it's basically to me like an early attempt to explain what wasn't really understood. Uh, so so I, I wouldn't really okay. say it's possible for something like that to evolve in our world because we simply okay. don't have those aspects to it. So I, I got a question for you and this is, I wanna to speak to you as a father here because mm -hmm. uh, I do have a daughter and so one of the things that I would find the hardest to be uh, an atheist now, I was an atheist in the past, but I think one of the things that would cause me so much grief at this point, being a father, is to, to have the belief, the knowledge that I would never see my daughter again. And so, uh, because you die and you're done. And I think, I, I think if I'm putting myself in the shoes of an atheist, I think every day it makes it would make every day with your child just that much more precious and that you want to cherish at every last moment because you believe that this is all you got. And in that sense, I do believe that atheism has a bit of an upper hand on uh, Christianity or the belief in God because we can put off whatever, you know, we can put certain things off and we, we don't have, we don't feel like we have to accomplish everything in this life. So how does that influence you uh, as being, uh, being a father? I lost my oldest son to spinal meningitis uh, wow. eight years ago, almost eight years ago, uh, 2013 wow. uh, in May. Uh, he would be turning uh, 22 uh, coming up wow. if he had not passed away. Yeah, it was a difficult time. I'm not going to lie to you. That was a really, really rough one. Uh, speaking as a father, it, it does make all, you know, knowing that this is it these, you know, the moments that we have, they be, do become more precious. And I do have people ask, well, you know, what if you've lost a child? I did. Um, and that doesn't change the fundamentals of 
what I believe and why should it? I've always valued integrity first and foremost, and that's what I taught him. And while I miss him every day, uh, I still can cherish the time that we had. And just like I cherish the time that I have with the children who are still with me. Thank you for that, man. So um, how do you know? How do you know? And, and this is where you and I, as, as a pair of atheists, I'm going to kind of challenge you a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you know that the natural realm is all that there is? Or do you not know that? Are you more of an agnostic atheist or, or what? Well, all right. So this is where we're going to get, so we're going to have start getting longer answers because these are going to be more complicated questions. So I hope that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first thing I would ask, and I hate to answer a question with a question, but First, what does it mean to say you have knowledge? Like, and I often bring up the coffee cup example because I always have a coffee cup and it always has coffee in it. Um, You know, if I were to say, I know that this coffee cup is here, Mm -hmm. I'm making a a distinct assertion about a set of attributes of a thing that are, that is independently verifiable. All right. There's a very clear definition for what constitutes a coffee cup. Uh, you know, you know, you know them if you see them, even when they look wildly different in some ways. Uh, we can say we have knowledge of certain things. When we talk about things not existing and how we say we know they don't exist, uh, it comes down to a fundamental set of definitions. All right, uh, the supernatural itself doesn't really have a coherent definition in the first place. The nearest definition to it is literal magic. Uh, which has a 100% failure rate in every single instance in which it has been tested uh, or any attempts at making it work. And we know, we can say that we know prayer doesn't work because statistics tells us this. We can say that we know faith healing does not work because statistics tell us this. We can measure failure rates and success. So when we talk about saying, I know the supernatural isn't real, well, if you're saying, I, you're telling me, should I consider magic? And well, no, because it always fails, which is exactly what you'd expect of something that isn't real. It always um, comports with the definition of non-existence. See, I, I view the supernatural. See, this is why I'm kind of what we call an agnostic atheist or a soft atheist, uh, like a five or six on the Dawkins scale, but not a hard seven. Because to me, the natural realm is that which can be measured. That's the essence of all science, right? To measure everything in the universe, even if we don't have the tools or the methodology to measure, we can conceptualize, hey, we should be able to detect and measure these things. But then outside of the universe, outside of space and time, which we don't even know if there is an outside the universe, we don't even know that time exists outside of the universe. Time is a dimension of this universe. But I can't make a knowledge claim about what I don't know, because I have no way of measuring what's outside the universe. So I refer to that as the supernatural. And because it is possible, you know, that this expanding universe could be expanding into something, or that this universe, which is 13.8 billion years old, that perhaps there was something before, even though I can't be sure that there's a before, but I can't be sure that there's not a before And because I can't be sure of that, I can't say with absolute certainty that there is no God or no first cause, no creator, no supernatural. Now, the attributes of God, as as Christians and most theists 
uh, describe him, I'm 100% certain that doesn't exist. That's why I say I'm agnostic on the whole question, but I'm an atheist in your religion because nobody has been able to draw the connection between this mm -hmm. very slender, vague possibility mm -hmm. that there's something mm -hmm. supernatural, which for me means outside the natural mm -hmm. realm, outside the universe. Mm -hmm. And their particular church on this particular street that meets at nine o'clock every morning on Sunday, you know, they can't draw a logical chain from that to you have to attend this church, otherwise you'll go to hell uh, without committing a series of logical fallacies along the way. So, yeah. so that's me. But uh, as, as, a, as an anti-theist, what do you make of, of my take on that? This is your chance well, to dish yeah, out, you know. Okay, so I, I judgment on me. With, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you. I mean, the, I, I have to remain open, no matter how certain that I am, I have to remain open to the possibility of error. So uh, when I say I know it's not part of this universe, I mean, this universe is the only thing I can speak of. This mm -hmm. may be the only universe. There may be more. If you present evidence that this alternate universes and whatnot start to exist and have a very different set of laws, I don't know that I would necessarily even call those supernatural. That would just be the nature within those universes. Yeah, but once you can detect within, it and measure yeah, it. Yeah, it's like, yeah, if yeah. in one of these, like the fictional worlds that I create where magic is a thing, the supernatural and the natural are one. They are part of the same system and they coexist mm -hmm. with one another. Uh, the supernatural is just something that has a different set of properties than the standard natural things. They act in contradiction to or can control the natural. I don't see anything like that in this universe. I don't see any evidence of it being possible and don't know of anything beyond this universe. So to the greatest degree that reasonable certainty can be ascribed to me, I would say that I have that. But anything beyond this so, universe, up for grabs. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I got... I got two questions for you real quick. One really quick, just try to answer this in one or two sentences. Sure. And then we'll ask the other one. But the first one is, what would constitute um, reasonable proof uh, in the existence of God? Try to answer that quick for you to meet your standard of um, proof. You know, would you have to like physically see God? Physically seeing would be a nice start. But I have a consistent, you know, I actually have a, a consistent test that I have applied to this kind of thing. Uh, a deity in the traditional, I know everything kind of sense of a deity. A deity would have knowledge that I lack, all right? Now, that doesn't mean that everybody who knows something that I don't is a god. But mm. a starting point would be a demonstration of verifiable knowledge that could not be obtained outside of having a sort of supernatural skill set. For example, um, I have had all manner of people say, oh, God talks to me, including family members who are quite devout. Um, but if I were to write down a 26-character alphanumeric sequence, do you think I could and ask every person to say, hey, have God tell you what this sequence is? Do you think I could ever find anybody whose communications with God would provide the answer to that question? I'll tell you the answer is no. I've never met anybody that could. And if I wrote this down and put it in my wallet and God says, hey, I exist. I have knowledge that you don't. My first question is going to be, okay, what's the sequence? Okay, Show me that's you know reasonable. something that you couldn't have known otherwise. 
That's a, that's reasonable. Uh, I think I heard Sam Sam Harris making that same argument. But getting back to the topic of mental health, I want to ask you a question that what should be a punishment for people who commit crimes because of the fact that I would say like if you if you're out committing a crime, it seems like in some way shape or another you would have to be have some degree of mental health issues. Because if you're, you know, if you're fully mentally healthy, uh, you know, you're not going to want to be doing crimes in the first place. But what should be our response to that? And what do you think about the Norway model, which seeks to rehabilitate criminals rather than uh, just punish them like in the U.S.? And just to give you an example of the Norway model, those guys live better than I do. So that's not really saying a lot, but I, yeah, I, I've missionary. actually seen yeah pieces on. I'm that. a missionary that's here true. in South Korea, so uh, luxury is not really something I'm interested in, uh, in this lifetime. But uh, those guys live nice, like mm-hmm. four star hotel, nice, and uh, hmm. but they have a really low recidivism um, rate, right? right, right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, you know, with as with most things, I follow the evidence. I mean, the Norway model has a uh, a, a recidivism rate uh, of about thirty percent. The American system has a recidivism rate, at last I read, of about seventy percent. Uh, mm-hmm. So I have to support the most effective system. And then there's you know simply a, a practical matter. Who do you really want to run into in a dark alley? The guy who you know, was treated like a human being or the guy who had to literally watch his behind every hour of every day. Which system is more likely to create a functional, stable human being that is ready to be part of a society? Right. The American system uh, is fundamentally about retribution, which makes Mm -hmm. us feel good in a way that is not, (laughs) you know, not something I like about human nature. Everybody loves a revenge story. But in reality, we need a system that reduces crime more than we do a system that makes people feel good about the fates of the criminals. I I know that some people, they can't be reformed. That's just how it is. And those people have to be kept away from society. We don't want psychopaths roaming the street. We, We don't need people who simply cannot function within our society. But on the whole, I mean, if somebody steals a jacket, I don't want them watching their behinds for the next five years and then having them re-enter society with no skills mm-hmm. and preparation to function out here. Uh, the practical system of reformation, uh, rehabilitation, seems to be the more effective. So I have to support that. You know what? Uh, speaking of stealing stuff, I, I do want to talk about this real quick. Uh, I actually was a kleptomaniac for a, a time mm-hmm. in my life. I got involved in crime and vandalism very early on in my life. Uh, We adopted a lot of children into our family. And one of these boys in particular came from a very bad background. And uh, I don't think my parents were even thinking about what kind of effects he might have on me, you know, but he used to take me out stealing and vandalizing and stuff. And that like stayed with me well into adulthood till I got caught like at the age of 20, maybe like 20. It was like one of the most embarrassing things ever. But uh, I think that 
the the klepto the kleptomaniac, I, I do think it's 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 a it is a legitimate kind of a mental health issue that people need to uh, not you know there needs to be punishment. I'm not saying that there's not punishment, but uh, I think treating things like that and understanding. Actually, I really didn't understand why I was doing it, you know. But I think when I got counseling and I understand the way that I was functioning and mm -hmm. the healthy unhealthy behavior I had developed, it was very helpful for me. So I think society is best when you're able to deal with things and you're able to not have to live in fear of what, you know, people are going to think. Because a lot of people have mental health uh, stigmas, you know, there's a lot of stigma behind it. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, I remember growing up, that was like the worst insult you could say to someone like, oh man, you need help. Like, you need you, you need a you got issues da da da. It was like it was getting pwned owned by somebody, mm -hmm. you know. And I think, especially as being a Latino male, there was like this: you just do not do you do not show weakness. You know, Marshall was mentioning about not showing weakness, and so I, I really would like to see. And part of the reason why we're talking about this, you know, because I do really want to destigmatize it. Hey, I got counseling. Uh, I was a kleptomaniac. I was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. I was divorced. And understanding mm -hmm. the reason why I was doing things was very important to get to the next step, to stop doing, stop behaving that way. Mm -hmm. But what do you think the, cost, the causes of substance abuse are? And what do you think about Oregon making substances legal now? And what should be our response to society as far as a drug addiction? A drug addiction? Uh, you know, as far as, uh, I'm not too familiar with Oregon state law, but I mean, depending on how they've handled it, I would treat it like alcohol. Fine if you do it and don't hurt anyone, not fine if you start becoming a negligent parent, operate heavy machinery, mm -hmm. drive a car, etc. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, what you do, as long as you're not harming anyone, is more or less generally fine by me. Uh, as far as the causes of substance abuse, I mean, that's wildly varied. I mean, that's going to depend on the age, the demographic, but a lot of individual reasons. I mean, I think a lot of people self-medicate. People who have mental health issues will often self-medicate with substances trying to treat themselves, which is not the best decision in the world, but it's an understandable choice, especially given that we're already talking about somebody who needs medication in the first place. Uh, some people are forced to take you know, illicit substances, deliberately get them addicted to manipulate or harm them. And some people do these things by accident. Some people get right. addicted to things like opiates because they've gone to the hospital and that's what they took for pain. And there's a lot of different reasons behind substance abuse. So there's no one clear answer to that. But my overwhelming answer is that it should be treated as a medical issue uh, and, an, and only a criminal issue if there is some over-reckless harmful or dangerous behavior uh, outside of that. Okay. Yeah, I got a couple questions I want to tack on to this. Uh, sure. The first of which is what would your advice then be to a person who is struggling with some kind of issue? And, and I know there's a lot of people who might be in denial about it, uh, or mm -hmm. maybe they don't fully appreciate the severity of their issue, uh, but they know that there's some kind of struggle or strife going on on some level. What would you say to those people? Number one, it happened. It, it ha, it's not a defect uh, in your 
and your worth as a person. It doesn't mean that you're weak. It's no different than any other injury. We don't make mock somebody as weak for using a wheelchair when their legs are broken. We don't mock somebody as weak for going to a doctor to get a bullet extracted when they get shot. Mm-hmm. Your, your mind is just in your, your mind, your brain is just another muscle and it requires treatment just like anything else that may be sick or injured or anything else. We don't think something's wrong with somebody personally if they sneeze because they've got a cold. Uh, so we shouldn't treat mental illness as if it's some special category. What I would say is, number one, know that you're not alone. And number two, there's resources out there for you to get help and, um, and that you deserve help to get the best kind of life you can out of this existence. What would you say to the person who thinks that mental health issues are a sign of weakness? I would ask, number one, why they necessarily think that. Because, um, I, I mean, it, what their answer is will kind of depend on my response. I mean, if it's somebody, I don't know, if, do you ever go on a Reddit? Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, you ever been to a subreddit called r slash I am very badass? No, I haven't heard of it. It's hilarious. Uh, you, you know, you, everybody knows that one guy who's like, oh, I'm so tough, I, I'm a, I'm a real man. I'm a kitchen mash, drink all that beer. Uh, you know, and they're, they're the one who's like, I'm so, that, it's those posts. The internet tough guys get put on blast for everybody to laugh at. And typically, I think most people, I think if you really press most people, they'd know better. But then you get the ones who are convinced that the action hero mythos of the guy who can mow down a bunch of people and then sleep at night without a problem and be perfectly fine forever they think that's the what the ideal to aspire to and anything who falls short of that is you know just pathetic and weak and that's just somebody with no life experience right there could that that's be not a real. mental a mental issue in and of itself i mean there are people who have like a, a higher sense of a danger threshold a higher response to or sorry a lower response to danger in terms of emotional sense mm-hmm. a lower flight or fight, flight or fight response um I don't know that I would necessarily call it an issue. I mean, if you're a bomb diffuser, that's kind of what you want. But, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you don't want to get a little shaky with that hammer. (laughs) Um, Right. Absolutely. Or with the wire cutters. Um, But uh, on the whole, I mean, you know, we're humans. There is a a broad spectrum to our, our thoughts and feelings and who we are and what we are. And this idea that we have to amputate part of that in order to aspire to some mythological version of human is just absurd that's emotional circumcision right i (laughs) i've never heard it that way but yeah (laughs) i do um you know i do want to interject here for a second i i became a christian about seven years ago uh i was divorced from my wife at the time and we've reunited since then and uh, we have a daughter together now but oh thank you thank you yeah she she just turned three actually uh, on the 17th so she was born right in the pyeongchang winter olympics time that is amazing she we were divorced for five years and when i came back to south korea she got pregnant tonight i got back but after i became a christian uh i had a bit of a mental breakdown and my family sat me down and they said uh you're going to get into counseling tomorrow, like no choice, no nothing. 
And when I went to the counseling, uh, they did like a triage. So they talked to me for about an hour and a half. And they asked me everything that I have done in my life for like the last like 20 years or since I've been a, uh, an adult. And when I was actually verbalizing the things that I had done, it was, it was such a different, it was such a different, uh, like I was able to realize what I was doing so much more than just the kind of when you get onto autopilot and you're just doing the things that you do, you know, and my counselor told me that there's a reluctance to talk about the things that you've done. It's like, it's like people, she said, like, if you try to cut your hand, there would just be a reluctance to like physically cut off a finger sure. or something. So one of the things that they did was that they would have us uh, do art therapy. And cause they said, whenever you don't have to talk about it or write it down, you have a more free flowing uh, thoughts. So, so I did do that and uh, it was very helpful. But I think that's a very biblical, um, it's a very biblical truth that the Bible describes God as being a light. And uh, the book of Hebrews said that everything is going to be exposed by his light. So for me to not get counseling, to not talk about things, to not even talk about my sins and my shortcomings and everything else in my life, that is like a recipe for disaster. So I see that one, it makes sense in that two. Uh, the Bible talks about two different things, but it talks about, uh, it says like you could, you could uh, sum up the whole, the whole Bible in like two sentences. So it says that love, uh, love people and love God. And so yourself is also a person and taking care of yourself. People always see like, oh, love my neighbor as myself. And they also forget to think that that also includes yourself. You know, so you have to love yourself. You have to show self-care. The humility that comes in with the H in this letter is that to admit that we have these faults, these flaws in our lives, and that there's nothing to be ashamed of, you know? The only thing to be really ashamed of is to, to, to deny it and being in denial and hiding your head in the sand or hiding behind the Bible. I'll tell you this. A lot of Christians do that. They, like, they hide behind the Bible like, oh, I just have Jesus Christ. Like, I don't need to go get counseling. Uh I don't need to exercise. Uh, I don't need to do that. All I have is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So that can also, people can go overboard with that as well. First of all, I mean, I just really just want to say thank you for your responses, Robert. You've clearly given these a lot of thought. I'm more than happy to. It's good questions. It's worth my time. Okay. So the last one is, what do you think should be done um, for the homeless or mentally healthy people like who are in Skid Row, <clears throat> like in Los Angeles? Because... I'm not sure. I think I told you this. Did you see, did you get to see the Elisha Lamb story? Yes, uh, I did. Uh, there was, uh, I want to say it was on Netflix or was it on yeah. well, one of, Netflix, Netflix or Hulu, Netflix. one of the two. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I saw the video yeah, about that and that was on, um, I actually first heard about that on a, a, a channel I would put on for background uh, noise sometimes called Strange and Scary Mysteries. And it showed some of the video of her uh, mm -hmm. looking around like she was being followed and like she was worried that somebody was after her. And for people wondered if maybe that was the case and if somebody had done something to her. Uh, that was tragic, uh, really was. Uh, so as far as done for the mentally ill, the homeless and so on, um, you know, more, more funding for treatment and for housing uh, that was recently read about this i didn't think to bookmark it but 
they started creating tiny, these little small, like two bedroom homes and they're nothing dramatic, but it's about the size of the whole house is about the size of my bedroom here. I don't know if you can get kind of proportion here, but it's about 10 paces across, but it offers a little personal space, enough room for more than one person. And you can make lots of these and they can be fully functional, cheaply air conditioned, cheaply heated, uh, a place to sleep, a place to eat, and a place to be safe. Uh, I like the idea of doing a large number of those over an expanded area and providing, you know, people some way in order to live so that they're not on the street out in the elements. Mm -hmm. That's th those living out there like that is no way to live. Uh, right. And as far as the mentally ill, I mean, more money for treatment, uh, more facilities and a honestly a more honest discussion about this kind of thing as a society. So we can destigmatize it as much as possible. So somebody can say, Oh, you know what? I need help. Uh, or recognize that they need help because sometimes people don't want to admit that they have a problem for a variety of reasons, some of which are the fact that we do still have that stigma about it. Uh, so there's more that we can do. And I like ideas like that. Uh, it's not easily implemented, but, you know, it's not everything has to be easy. If we um, had a program of economic justice, in this nation, as well as uh, teaching mental health from a very young age, mm -hmm. uh, you know, normalizing, talking about our mental health. Mm -hmm. um, I think we would have a much different society. And I am hopeful that the youth in this nation will mm -hmm. bring about some of these changes, just as we've seen these changes uh, take place in the military. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd also like to see changes like that take place throughout the educational system and throughout our society as a whole. So, yeah, you know, I, I would add to that, actually, since you bring up education, uh, you know, giving people some job skills along the way so that they wouldn't, they would have a skill that would let them get employment uh, would be a big step forward too. You know, if somebody's homeless. Okay. Well, I say, if you don't have a home, you should be automatically be eligible for some sort of a certification program that would let you get a job and, get you, you know, get your life in order, you know? Um, yeah, I think that there's... That wouldn't be a bad thing either. Yeah, there seems I would to be a... Pay, I, would even, yeah, I would even pay them for it, uh, mm -hmm. contingent upon, Absolutely. you know, performance. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, 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 there yeah. seems to be a fetish with getting kids into geometry, trigonometry, calculus, and other mm -hmm. uh, advanced uh, uh, coursework mm -hmm. in high school, when actually uh, we're leaving a lot of uh, basic stuff behind on the table yeah. uh, in elementary school. You know, so I remember growing up, one of my elementary school teachers very specifically said, America has the best education system in the world because everybody gets the opportunity to go to college. And she gave like Germany or China as an example where you have to take tests early on to determine whether or not you'd even be eligible to get into college. So, South Korea, mm -hmm. in South Korea, uh, kids have to take like high school exams and so some of them they just if it's really low then the last couple of years in high school they're just learning a trade so they'll they'll graduate and they already know how to do hair or to learn how to work on a car or to learn how to do some sort of computer designing think... and so the, the idea that everyone needs to go to college or that there's some kind of shame or, and like working with your hands or being a mechanic, mm -hmm. those guys actually make really decent money. So I think more trading, uh, 
you know, it, it would be really good. I've seen the model here uh, alive and well in South Korea, and it, it works really well. So, Rob, uh, I want to I know, do you have anything that we could look up as far as your writings, or do you have any websites or any social media, anything like uh, that? that I sure. I mean, I release on a website called Royal Road. Uh, they host a lot of web novels, and uh, there's my Patreon, which is uh, patreon.com slash telling stories. Uh, I've started compiling these into ebooks, which I release uh, a couple times, which I'm going to be releasing a couple times a month. Um, most of my stuff is freelance. It's private, uh, privately paid for. It's amazing what people will pay for a good story. Um, you know, uh, but I do get to release all of that uh, through those mediums. And um, it's, it's funny how I got started on this. Uh, if you want that story, that's actually kind of weird. Weird and we'll have to have you. I'll tell you what, we'll have, we'll have you back for another issue and we'll just talk about creative writing and stuff like that. Sure. I do some writing as well. So, uh, yeah, with that being said, Robert, uh, we really want to thank you for your time. You had a lot of great insights and uh, you're very articulate and you're uh, looks like you're all around good guy, man. I, I really enjoy I this time. I think yeah. if we ever meet in person, I think we'd go out for a nice uh, pepperoni and pineapple pizza and. Sure. We'd have a good yeah. little talk in person. Yeah. Well, if you want to, uh, you know, we can do that sometime if you're ever uh, in Louisville. Uh, in the meantime, I'm looking for something good to read. My most recent one is a book called uh, Who Endures. Um, it's from the Latin saying, um, who, con who endures conquers. Uh, it's a running joke among my readership that everything is a reference. So you'll find all kinds of like little historical nuggets and philosophy nuggets and all kinds of other stuff in there references to like various ancient religions. I love throwing that stuff into fiction. So, uh, you know, have fun with it. All right. Marsh? I just want to say thank you. I appreciate the nuggets of wisdom uh, that you dropped here today. I'm looking forward to sharing those with our audience. I hope something that you said uh, resonates with uh, different uh, audience members uh, and that it enriches their lives as well. And I think that'll, that'll very much happen. So I want to thank you for all of that. And uh, take care. And I look forward to seeing you the next time you're on our show. All right. Well, thanks. It's been a pleasure. Uh, you guys are great. Have a great 2021. You got it. Last question. Last question. Favorite yes. rock and roll band of all time, Robert? Mm. Metallica. <laughs> oh! Good choice. That's a... Without hesitation. All right. I love the Black Album. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, That's all right. That's it. One of all-time favorites. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today at RIT Podcast, and we look forward to seeing you again. Thank, thank you. you. Uh, I've been in the military for about 21, 22 years now. Wow. Uh, time flies, right? M about... Uh, 16 of those were active years, uh, including deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan a couple of times, including the Bush surge. Worst travel agency ever, by the way. <laughs>